will be four weeks on worldview. And if you're new here to the Sunrise family, this is a different type of thing for us. I haven't really done this, oh, in 10 and a half years since I've been here. So we're going to do four weeks specifically on a topic and developing this idea of worldview. And I've, as I said, I've been thinking about this for a while, but just haven't really put it all together and haven't quite made it come to fruition yet. And this study will be a little bit more similar to some of the things that we would normally do in our equipping hour time, which is the nine o'clock class just before. And as I was thinking through this, and why is this the right time to do a study of worldview, we're always thinking through things, sort of through, as a pastor at least, through three different lenses, I would say. You're looking at the world, the big picture of what's going on in the world, and there's a lot happening out there, if you guys haven't noticed. I know many of us, probably, you almost want to tune out sometimes because there's so much coming at you so fast, and you can hit saturation point on who's attacking who and which embargoes are in effect and who's, who's taking over what territory and what world leader is in crisis. So there's all of that. There's viruses. We have elections coming up. And we've already started election season. I know much to the excitement of some of you and much to the disappointment of others of you. It's a never-ending cycle. So we have the world and what's going on in the larger world. Then we also have our church family. And I try to be very in tune with what's going on in our church family. And I'm just acutely aware right now, even as Adam prayed earlier, for just a sense of loss a sense of hurt that we've had amongst our church family, even recently, losing people, people are sick, broken relationships, difficulties. I just feel there's just a particular sense of that right now, maybe more so than at other times, broken relationships. And then also, I think as, as a pastor, you're thinking through what would be helpful to do. I think you have to look at what's grabbing your own heart as well. Now, while I don't fully subscribe to the way Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, used to pick his text, the story goes that he would sit with his Bible in his study on a Saturday night, and he said every text would say, preach me, preach me. Now, if I waited till Saturday night in order to give you, to put together a sermon each Sunday morning, let's just say you would know, all right? So I'm not going that route, and I also want to make sure that I tell you, we're not, we're not changing the way that we do things here at Sunrise, all right? Uh, we're going to go back to verse-by-verse verse study. I think that is overall, in the big picture, the most healthy way for a church to learn the Word of God. You come to these topics as they, as they are approached and presented in the Scripture, and so I, I, don't, I don't plan to do anything, uh, anything different. Uh, this will just be a break for four weeks, and this is what we're going to do, is look at this issue of worldview. Um, Adam actually did a little bit of an intro uh, for my sermon this morning, so thank you, Adam, uh, for doing that. At the nine o'clock session, uh, which was fantastic, if some of this piques your interest, I would encourage you to go grab that, uh, that lesson. You can find it online at our website, and I think you'll be helped by it. I'll interact a little bit with a couple of the concepts that he presented this morning, which I think were, were really helpful. So when we talk about this issue of worldview, we're calling this God's Word for God's World. When we talk about this issue of worldview, we're talking about, quite simply, how you view the world around you, right? Sort of self-evident, even in the word worldview. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, 
but because by it, I see everything else. I think that's a helpful way to understand this issue of worldview. So when we're talking about, Lewis was using the sunrise, that picture was taken right down here at Neptune Beach. Isn't it nice? Any of you guys just go down there and watch the sunrise? I'm sure some of you do. I can't tell you how many sunrise pictures I have on my phone. I was just scrolling through. They're just everywhere. Some of y'all prefer to catch it on the other end, right? <laughs> like sunrises happen early, don't they? Yeah, we'll just catch it on the other end. I get that too. They're pretty as well. But I think Lewis is on to something here. It's not just that we see the sunrise. It's that the sun illuminates everything else. And my prayer, as we go through these next few weeks, looking at this issue of worldview, is that we would come to understand and see that really that's what a worldview does. It illuminates the world around us so that we can see. We're always looking and we're always interpreting what's going on around us. I want to give you a few definitions. You don't have to write all these down. I just wanted to give you an idea and then we will dial into a few of these. Abraham Kuyper, he's a great thinker. I spent a little time with Kuyper last summer as I was on sabbatical. He's not around anymore. Um, spent some time with his books, I should clarify. <laughs> that would be a whole new theological issue if I'd actually spent time with Kuyper. He says it's a life system, right? So a life system rooted in a fundamental principle from which was derived a whole complex of ruling ideas and conceptions about reality. Let me just simplify this down for us a little bit. It's what you believe about reality and your values and everything about you will stem from what you believe reality to be. All right? We'll develop that more as we move along. Francis Schaeffer, Adam quoted this morning a couple of times, he was very influential on me as well. In fact, years ago when Adam and I were actually corresponding about sunrise and, you know, would this be a place that I would maybe come and pastor? At one point, Adam, in one of his emails to me, he quoted Schaefer. I'm like, huh, I think I may like these people. I think we're going to be okay. Schaefer said this, a perspective on life, a whole system of thought that answers the questions presented by the reality of existence. So it's a perspective on life. And Geisler said, it is an interpretive framework by which one makes sense of life and the world. So an interpretive framework. It's the story, if you will, it's the narrative that helps you sort out everything else in life. Work with me for a second on an illustration. You may find it silly, but I find it helpful. You can pick your category after you hear it. Let's just pretend for a moment that there was an intelligent being, intelligent beings that were in another planet at some place. Like I said, work with me for a moment here. And they were advanced beyond us, and they had figured out a way to send a messenger to planet Earth. But here, here was the thing. This messenger, this visitor, observer, he would exist in a dimension that's imperceptible to us. All right, so he sort of beams in, but we can't see him. We don't know he's there, and all he can do is observe. All right, with me so far? And the other piece of the technology is he can only stay for 10 minutes. All right, so you get 10 minutes on planet Earth, and they can only do this once, and so they decide to beam him in. They happen to pick 298 Aquatic Drive, and they happen to pick 1051 on a Sunday morning. All right? 
So our visitor comes in. He's in the back right now. You can't see him. He can see you, but he can't interact with you. He stays for 10 minutes, and then he goes back. The crowd gathers around of his kind on this other planet, and they say, so what's Earth like? What is this place, Earth, this blue planet that's way out there? He says, well, humans is what we call them. They're bipods, if two legs, not four. They're upright. They speak, but maybe only one of them knows how to speak. Well, maybe a few more. You can see a lot up here. They speak. One person talks. The rest sit in a chair and listen. One of them thinks he's funny occasionally. Some of them laugh out of courtesy. They stare at this guy. He talks for a while. They talk about this ancient book. They talk about a higher being. And that's all I had time for. That's what happens on earth. Now, what's the story that our friendly, we'll call him a Martian, was the story that our friendly Martian got, is it true? It's true as far as it goes, right? It's true as far as it goes. What he completely lacks, though, is a bigger story to unsort what he just saw. He has no concept of what else we do. He has no concept that this is really, in the big scheme of your week, this is a very small percentage of your time, right? You do a lot of other things. He has no concept of that. And so what a worldview does, it helps us to interpret, to understand, to see life in front of us, and it helps us to put it in a bigger frame, like a puzzle, if you will. We'll use a few different illustrations for this as we move along, but hopefully that's helpful for you. I think Israel was doing this all the time, right? Even in our psalm this morning, Psalm 79, they're recalling the Lord's wondrous works at the temple. They're lamenting the fact that the temple has been destroyed, and they're looking to the Lord. Restore us again in the future. Do this thing, Lord. They were continually looking for God's deliverance. I think this is happening all the time. In fact, this series of psalms that we're reading right now, Psalm 78, 79, 80, and moving forward, they're all lamenting the fact that Israel has lost what they thought they should have as their blessing. And they're looking forward to what God is going to do in the future. They conceived of, them, of themselves, the psalmist in particular, as the sheep of God's pasture. We are here on God's earth, and God is our shepherd. Sheep don't do well without shepherds. And so Israel conceived of herself as that. And so I think this is going on all the time in the Bible. So how do we put the Bible together? How do we unsort this in a way that hopefully is helpful for you? So we're going to ask the question, what's in a worldview? And I want to give you four points, and then we're going to ask four questions, and we're going to look at these four topics. All right? So first one is this. The biblical solution for the problem of where did I come from is creation. Creation, the topic, of course, of origin. Now, as we walk through these, I'm going to make the case that everybody on planet Earth is trying to answer these four questions I'm going to give you, okay? Everybody is trying to do that. And what I want you to do as a little thought experiment as you're listening along this morning, I want you to, in your mind, create a fourth category and ask the question, what if the Bible isn't true? What are the alternatives? What are the alternative views? 
what if creation isn't true? Where did I come from? God's not an option for your answer there. Where did I come from? Think through it. So first one, creation. Question, where did I come from? Topic is that of origin. The fall. What's wrong with the world? The topic of evil and suffering. We deal a lot with that. We'll deal with that next week. We'll touch on it this week, but we'll deal more with that next week. What's wrong with the world? I don't think I've met anybody that I've had a serious conversation with that would in a straight, would straight face just say, I don't think there's any problems in the world. Has, has anybody had that experience? They say the, the world is actually utopia now. We are experiencing complete shalom, complete peace. Has anybody had that experience? I doubt it. Everybody knows there's something wrong with the world. The question is, what is the actual problem? And, of course, then, what are we going to do to fix it? What's going to fix the world? Biblical answer is redemption. It's the topic of justice, which is a hot button in today's world and culture. We're all struggling with this, but this isn't new. For some of our philosophy folks amongst us, this was what Plato was wrestling with, the Republic of Plato. What is justice? How do you create a just society and a just city? These are not new questions. And then finally, restoration. Where are we headed? What happens next? The biblical answer is restoration. The question of destination. Where are we going? What are we trying to accomplish? So this will be what we do as we walk through this. And one other intro point to this, and then we'll jump into creation a little bit more specifically. The Bible is actually organized by two big, what we'll call bookends. Look at how the Bible is built. You have the creation story, you have the fall, and then ultimately redemption, and then you have rest- restoration in Revelation 21-22. I want you to try this sometime, maybe this afternoon when you go home while this is fresh on your mind. Go home, read straight through Genesis 1 and 2, and then jump straight to Revelation 21 and read Revelation 21 and 22. The story actually makes perfect sense. You start with a garden, you end with a city. You have people who are in the presence of God. You have a tree of life. You have a tree of life. You have a river that flows out of Eden. You have a river that flows out of Eden. You have a land that says there was gold in that land and the land was, and the gold was good. Then you have what? A city with streets of gold. And so you see this correspondence. The story actually makes perfect sense. The problem is we're stuck in the middle here for a few thousand years, all right? As I've heard Al Mohler say, we're a Genesis 3 world with a Revelation 21 hope. That's what we are. We're, we're here. And I've got the cross right in the middle. That's not necessarily a statement of what I think the timeline was going to be. It's just aesthetically that worked the best, all right? So Jesus has come. We're living on the right side, as it were, of the cross. And we're waiting. So we're looking back and we're looking ahead as well. So I think the Bible breaks down in this way. And I actually find this super helpful when you're reading through the scripture, just to think through where are we? What's our hope? Where are we going in the end? All right, so let's dive into creation. We're gonna go back into Genesis 1. We're gonna spend a little time in Genesis 1. We're gonna spend a little time in Genesis 2. And then we'll have a couple of cross-references as we move along, all right? So creation, four things that we'll explore here. Number one, God created by his word. Number two, God speaks through his creation. Three, God created humans in his image. And then four, God took on human flesh. Now, if you're a little bit familiar with these topics, you know that each one of these could be a thesis 
well on its own, right? Um, volumes have and should be written on each one of these. So I'm not going to keep you until six tonight, maybe five, but not six. So we're going to explore these and really just introduce a few things and move along, all right? So number one is this, God created by his word. It's amazing how the Bible begins, The Bible doesn't begin with, in the beginning, there's a possibility that there could have been a life source out there that gave birth to everything. The Bible doesn't begin by trying to prove God exists. The Bible begins by telling you about the God who exists, all right? So if you're going to enter the worldview of the Bible, you've got to accept this. There are over, listen to this stat, there are over 200 verses after Genesis that talk about creation. 200 verses. It's just the air they breathed. They understood God as the creator. So if you don't accept that, if you read the first verse of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're like, eh, I don't know about that. You're not gonna love the book, right? You're just, you're just not gonna like it. it. So you have to enter into this perspective of the biblical authors, and the perspective is God has done something. He created It's emphatic, it's unapologetic, it's monotheistic. There's one God, he did this. This is in contrast to some of the other myths that are floating around out there. And that is there was this kind of world of chaos and disorder and there were these battles, you know, epic titanic battles between the gods of chaos and order. And at the end, you know, the good God is winning but the bad one is constantly fighting back and there's this massive you know, titanic, cosmic struggle going on. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says, in the beginning, God gave order. God did it. He spoke it. It happened. We believe this is true. I appreciated Adam's point on that this morning as well. We believe the Bible is true. We believe these things really happened. And that's what gives us hope, and that's the foundation for our faith Let's see this. We believe the Bible is true. Look at God's speaking. So if you're in Genesis 1, just glance through. So in Genesis 1, all the way down through the end of the chapter, through verse 31, we have the creation account. Uh, It's the story of the days of creation. God did this, day one, day two, day three, day four, all the way up through day six. And then it tells us he rested on day seven. So just glance with me. We'll do this kind of quickly. In most of your Bibles, these are going to be marked off by paragraphs. Look at verse 3. You're going to sense the pattern here in a moment. But just for the sake of driving this home, I'm going to read it. Verse 3, and God, what? Said. Verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, God said. Verse 14, God said. Verse 20, God said. 24, God said. 26, God said. There's a pronouncement. God did this by his word. He spoke it and it happened. There's no other voice like this. Nothing else. The word of God did this. This is amazing to me that all things came into existence just by God speaking. There was no struggle. He just did it. We have lots of conversations today about energy, renewables, Solar, wind, nuclear, fossil fuels, all the rest. I'm not going to get into any of that today. But the conversations are out there. How do we power our world? We like lights and 
air conditioners especially here in Florida coming out. Well, I was going to say we're coming out of summer, but I, don't, I haven't felt particularly that way yet. We talk a lot about power, just the power it takes to, to power our cities and our houses and cars and everything else. Just imagine the power, the energy that it would take to create the world. But not only that, listen to this verse, Hebrews 1.3. This is specifically talking about Christ. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And look at this. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What an amazing verse. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The amount of energy that it takes to keep this place rolling and moving. Just imagine that. By God's word. So God created by his word. He also sustains the world by his word. If he were to cease, the world would not be. Next, God speaks through his creation. God speaks through his creation. Hold your finger in Genesis 1, and I want you to go to Psalm 19 for a moment. You can't talk about creation without referencing Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a psalm that we looked at quite a few years ago now. Psalm 19 begins this way. The heavens... The skies, that is, the heavenly bodies, declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And notice the interchange here. Notice there seems to be a contradiction between verses 2, 3, and 4. We'll we'll talk about that. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. God's world is speaking constantly. The sun is rising every morning. As I've Maybe you're down at the beach. Sometimes early in the morning, you'll see people sort of piling out to go watch the sunrise. And I hope that you'll do that on occasion. And I hope that you do this, though. As you go out and as you enjoy the sunrise, don't just say, what a beautiful sunrise. Go a step beyond that and say, what is that sunrise telling me? It's telling me that there is a great and awesome and glorious God who sustains all things by the word of his power. Just take it one more level. Appreciate the beauty for what it is, but take it one more level. It's amazing. God does this every single day. I love the interchange here. So in verse 2, it says, day-to-day pours out speech, night-to-night reveals knowledge. So there's speech that's going out as the sun comes up and runs its circuit and comes back around. But then verse 3 says, there's no speech nor are there words. Their voice isn't heard. Oh, wait a minute. So there's speech, but there's not words, but then verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What's he talking about here? What he's saying is that the sun is speaking and the heavenly bodies are speaking. The world is speaking all the time, but it's not an audible thing, right? We can communicate a lot more with um, nonverbal communication sometimes. If you've been married more than about, well, three weeks, you know, you, you get the look, right? I'm probably getting it now. I'm not going to look. So it, 
you get this sort of look, and you, you know, it, so there's, there's speech, but there's no speech. And so I, I think the biblical writers are saying that it's so obvious. It's so obvious what creation's saying. No, there's not an audible voice coming out, but it's so obvious. Look. Now, this would have embedded itself amongst some ancient cultures as well, who worshiped the sun. Now, look at what God is doing. He's turning this. There were other cultures that worshiped the sun. They saw the sun as a deity. The biblical writers say, no, actually the sun is in service of the real deity, the real God. He's just telling you that God exists all day long, every day. He tells us we exist, tells us God exists here on the first coast, goes across the Midwest, goes across the Southwest, sets over there in California, eventually Hawaii, sometimes Alaska, comes back around, tells the Asian continent that God exists and just does it all over again every day. I can't talk about this without quoting G.K. Chesterton on this because it's just such a good quote. I've shared it with you before, but it's been a while. He's talking about children. And he said, children can glory in monotony. You've noticed that, right? Children can watch the same things over and over and over again. You you watch a show with them and like, can we watch it again? Can we watch it again? Can we watch it again? It's just, they can glory in monotony. And Chesterton is picking up on that. He says, they always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) But then he says this. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. We're not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. But he just never gets tired of making them. Do it again the glory of the world that we live in. Isn't that amazing? Just to think that God has created this abundant, beautiful world. It has a speech, though. It's saying something to you. I don't mean to get new agey here. I'm just telling you the Bible says there's words coming out from creation to you, and that is God exists. What happens when you reject that? Romans 1 shed some light on that. In Romans 1, 18, he's talked about those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans, sort of like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. It's just dying to pop up, but you won't let it. That's what creation is saying. It's speaking, but yet people suppress it over and over and over again. Romans 1, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain because God has shown it to them. How? For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He says God is speaking through his creation and the humans that see creation, they just can't deny it. For theologians amongst us, this is what we call general revelation. God has revealed himself, important definition, to all people, all places, at all times. Everyone has this creation, general revelation. And I think people know it. If you look at some of these studies, it's really interesting. I think a lot of times when we talk about sharing the faith with people, 
I think our fear sometimes is that we're going to bump into somebody that's a hardcore atheist and they're going to start asking us about fossils and carbon dating and things that some of us are kind of vaguely, have, maybe have some, uh, you got a good sentence or two on that, but if they really press you and you find somebody that actually knows what they're talking about, you're like, oh no, you know, I'm, I'm out. And I think we have this fear that we're going to just run into that person. I, I just want to tell you, they're statistically, all right, and I would say this is true anecdotally, personally as well. Statistically, there are very few true atheists in this country, statistically. It's amazing. There was a recent study I was looking at, and it just asked a simple question. Do you believe that there is a God? Eight out of 10 people said yes. All right, that's 80%. Now, some of y'all are listening to that going, I don't think 80% of the people I know live like there's a God. Another issue. But they, intellectually, they would say there is a God. So that's 80%. 10% of the 20 that said they don't believe in God said there's some sort of a higher power out there. All right, so for the sake of this conversation, I'm gonna lump those together and say nine out of 10 people believe there either is a God or there's something else out there. Now, they may have some really, really bad ideas about exactly what that is, how that works, what that deity is, what it wants. I understand that. But reality is they, may, they, they have some sort of an idea. And I think this verse helps explain why that is. Everybody knows. And I think the people that tell you there is no God, I think they're doing Romans 1.18. They're suppressing the truth and righteousness. I think they know. I really do. So let's see what else we can mine out here. So creation. God created by his word. It wasn't a struggle. He did it. He's powerful. He can. God speaks through his creation. He's made it clear and obvious that he does exist. Number three, God created humans in his image. Now, of course, this could be a study in and of itself. And we're going to go back to Genesis here. Let's go back to Genesis. So if you had flipped over to one of those cross-references, join me back at Genesis. And let's see what happens here. When the story is told of creation, there's a certain pattern that you'll see develop. And this goes verses 3 down through verse 23. There's creation, and then there's evening and morning. Creation of something, evening and morning. Creation, evening and morning. But then we get to this climactic creation event, the climactic moment of creation, and there's a little bit more detail given. And so what we have in Genesis, Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, there's two different things going on here. Genesis 1 is sort of the play-by-play, if you will. This is what happened. In honor of football season starting, we'll use a sports analogy for you. So you typically have two commentators in the booth, right? One person says, hey, running back took the ball, ran off right tackle, see how the, and he'll say, got three yards, all right? Next guy says, yeah, did you see the way that tackle pulled and they did an X block and this guy did this and got to the second level and the linebackers and he's explaining a little more detail. So what we have is Genesis 1 is the story, the play-by-play. What Genesis 2 does is double clicks on day 6, which is the creation of humans, and expands that out a little bit. All right? So they're not contradictory stories. They're, they're working together. Um, they're, they're the same story, but two different, two different perspectives and points that are being made here. So let's see what God said about the creation of humans. Everybody knows that humans are different from all the other animals, right? 
Everybody knows this. I think inherently they know this, although some push back on it. Genesis 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now the word creep that's used a couple of times there is probably creepy to some of you, but it's what it says. Everything that's on the earth, you have dominion and power over those things. So we don't get this at the creation of the dolphins or the mosquitoes, most certainly, don't have anything about being created in the image of God. I actually have a a scientific theological theory that they started after the fall in Genesis 3. I'll make that point for you next week. It's part of the fall, part of the curse. It must be. So we'll we'll work through that um, together. So there's a different story that's told. Humans, there's a different way that this material is presented. Let's go over to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 and verse 7. Now remember, we're double-clicking on day six, particularly the creation of the humans in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now this explanation is not given anywhere else. None of the other creatures get this kind of attention. He breathed life, breathed The spirit, the ruach is the Hebrew word, breathed into him. Humans and animals are different. I appreciated this quote from one theologian. He says, a cow is always simply a cow. It does not ask, what is a cow? Who am I? Only man asks such questions. And indeed, clearly has to ask them about himself and his being. This is his question. His question follows him in hundreds of forms. Isn't that true? Although I really like when I see the cows all gathered up in a big field with one tree. I just like to imagine the conversation that's going on out there. Maybe they are thinking, what is a cow? What's the essence of cowness? But we all know this isn't happening. The dolphins aren't gathered up this morning at the intercoastal debating worldview and the meaning of life. We all know there's something different about humans. And so the Bible has given us some vocabulary to help us think of this. So what are we? We are image bearers of God. This is an amazing reality, to be God's image bearers. means at least three things, many more. At least three things. One, we are embodied. We have bodies, and bodies are good. All right? I made this case and back when I did the gender study back in May for our equipping hour. So I won't take us too far down this track, but I think this is really important for us to get our minds around. Our bodies are good, okay? Now, some of you, some of us, when you get sick, when things hurt, when you have to have surgery, when you have a virus, you might think, actually, this body, it's not good. It's no good right now. But embodiment is the proper existence for humans. We are meant to be embodied, and we will be embodied in the eternal state forever and ever with a resurrection body. Now, you get an upgrade, so look forward to that. It's body 2.0, but we are designed, we're created from the dust of the earth, we are designed to be embodied creatures, okay? I think Christian theology, maybe over the years, we've had a little bit of uh, what's sometimes called escapism, 
Um, I just can't wait to get out of here. Uh, can't wait to escape my earth suit uh, kind of perspective. You even see it maybe in some of the older songs uh, coming out. I'll fly away. You know, some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. It's got a happy tune and, you know, message to it. And that's not, it's not wrong necessarily. But I think the accent is actually better on a couple of the songs that we sang this morning. Christ in power resurrected and we'll be like him when he comes. You see, the accent emphasis is on the return of Jesus and the proper embodiment, the healing. Let me just get real practical here with an application of this. I have been asked as a pastor, and you've probably faced these situations as families before, what do you do when somebody is terminally ill? They're suffering greatly. They're hurting. And you know their time on this earth isn't long. We could pray for them to pass away quickly and that the Lord would receive them, especially if we have confidence that they're a believer in Jesus Christ. And let me just, let me just say this. Please hear me say this. That is not wrong, all right? That is not a wrong prayer. I fully understand that. I have prayed that. But what about this? What if we pray that Jesus would return instead? What if we pray that Jesus would return? Because that's when it all gets fixed. And I think that's the hope. I think that's the hope. I think the biblical writers lived more with that rather than get me out of this body. I think they lived with, I can't wait for Jesus to return. That's how the Bible ends. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in better embodiment. All right? So image bearers. Bodies are good. We're supposed to have them. Next, we have gendered bodies. And again, I covered quite a bit of this back in May, so I won't go through all of that again. But I just want to make a couple of statements on this because this is obviously a battleground for our generation. And as we're talking about worldview, look at Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female, there's a quality clearly male and female. God created us to be gendered creatures. We are gendered because God has said we are so, not because of some system that we come up with and superimpose onto a stereotype or a particular social construct. I think this is clearly obvious too from verse 28. So you're created male and female, verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, and God blessed them And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. So be fruitful and multiply. Multiply what? Humans. Make more humans. Go fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. Without getting into any details this morning, understanding a mixed audience, that takes a male and a female. Okay? So Whatever metaphorical understanding people would want to try to bring to this text, you can't duplicate unless you have a male and a female. It's very obvious and plain. God has made us this way. He's made us gendered. We're going to move ahead a little bit. Let's talk about, um, let's talk a little bit more about humanity and our responsibility we are also responsible agents. We saw this in Genesis 126. He gave them dominion over the birds and the fish and all the animals. Genesis 2.15 says this, 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, I think this is significant because sometimes I think we believe that work started after the fall. Um, Work actually started before the fall, all right? Work got harder after the fall, but work is good. I've been reflecting a lot on this, coming off a little bit over a year after uh, our sabbatical, and just coming off this, just some reflections on work and rest. Work is good. We were created to work. You can't take a break until you've done something, all right? So people that say, I just, I just need a break. Like, from what? Like, you have, to, you have to do things in order to get a break. And so work and rest are both good. They're both good. More to come on that another day. He's given dominion given dominion over the earth. That's even the basis for technology. Use the, leverage the resources of the earth. It's good. Psalm 8 is a beautiful reflection on this whole idea that we find in Genesis. And I want to I read some of that psalm for you. And then I also, I know this is very exciting, I have some fresh artwork for you this morning. I know, I know this is, if you're new with us, um, you're really in for something special. Uh, here in just a moment. So Psalm 8 is a, is a reflection on the nature of humanity, the nature of the world that God has given us. So the psalm begins and ends the same way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Let's jump down to verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. So it's this very informed by Genesis 1. You just did this with just your little finger. The moon and the stars that you set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I hope that at some point in your life, you've been in creation, maybe out on the ocean, maybe you're at the beach, maybe you're at the mountains, wherever it is, and I hope that you've felt really small. It's good for you. (laughs) It's good for me. What am I? What am I that you're mindful of me? But then he says, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion. This is where I want to pick up. Dominion over the works of your hand. So God has placed humans here to do things. What are the things? You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, y'all ready for smart work? Here we are. Okay, so it's a little busy today, but work with me here. So what we have here, we have the house. Um, this is exactly what ancient Israelite houses look like. Um, done extensive research on that um, with the windows and chimney and the whole deal. Uh, okay, so here we have a pasture. That's why it's green. Um, that's the pasture. The sheep and the oxen, the first group, they live here. They're domesticated. We fence them in. We can sort of contain them. Next, he moves to the beasts of the field. You see the field, kind of the wild grass. The beauty's in the details. The wild grass, the trees, we're out. It's the field. So these are easier to domesticate. Beasts of the field, things like deer, a little bit harder. Next, we have birds of the air, especially pre-shotgun days. Kind of hard to get your hands on a bird. So they're a little bit more difficult. But the biblical point is, if you can get them, you can have them. They're yours. Next, the fish of the sea, even a little bit more difficult. Ah, we're in the water now, you see. So the fish of the sea, if you can get them, and they could, maybe not as well as we can now, and then the depths of the sea. So the depths of the sea in the Hebrew mind was just this utter chaos. It's how Genesis 1 starts. It's just this chaos. They don't know what's down there. We still don't know what's at the bottom of some parts of the ocean. Isn't that amazing? We still don't know. 
But the point is, if you can find it, whatever, whatever resources you can harness there, whatever animals you can get, they're yours. You can have them. They're yours to manage. So this is what we, the responsibility that people have. So I told you to be thinking about a question. The question was, what if God is not the creator? I'm gonna just float these out here for you this morning and then we'll pick up with this next week because I wanna spend a little bit more time exploring these. What if God is not the creator? How do you maintain the idea of human dignity? Why would animals not be more important than us? I think we're seeing some confusion on this front these days, precisely because we've lost the idea of creation. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins, he was asked one time what someone should do if they found out that their baby, that they're carrying, had Down syndrome. Want to know what Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, said? Abort and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. He actually got a lot of pushback on that, and he later apologized for what he said, and he tried to clarify what he meant, but I think his worldview just came out. Abort and try again. They don't have value. Why? Because value is tied to what you can do for society. It's a very utilitarian view. What makes a person valuable? Cognitive ability, self-consciousness, pain tolerance. What if you lose those things? Are you still valuable? What about those that never have those qualities? How do you maintain human dignity? Morality. What prevents a might-makes-right sort of universe and world? Sort of a classic Darwinian evolutionist perspective. Pure survival of the fittest. Do we have any responsibility to protect the vulnerable among us? Like, is it actual a moral responsibility that we have? I would say yes, and I think most people think that. I just don't think they know why they think that, and that's what I'm saying. Let me, let me clarify what I mean by that. I'm not saying that people that don't believe in God can't get it right. I'm saying they don't have a good reason for getting it right, <laughs> all right? Uh, sort of like when you guessed on the multiple choice test, you know, when you're in high school. It's like, what? And, you, and then you, like, walk away like you're awesome. It's like, no, you didn't, you didn't actually know anything. You just sort of got lucky. And so I, I think they don't really have a basis for saying the things that they say. Purpose. Does life have any meaning? What if you're just a random collection of atoms and molecules and particles just sort of stuck together? What if you have no actual ability to control what you're thinking right now? It's just biological. It's just resources that are just processing, like a computer. Can you have purpose and meaning? Destiny. That wasn't my favorite word, but it's the best one I could come up with. Where are we headed to? Um, destination, maybe, is better. Are we headed anywhere? Are we going somewhere? Or is this just one big loop? Are we just stuck in a loop cycle and we'll never get out of it? I think the Bible answers that question. We've talked about it already. Yeah, we're headed somewhere. We came from somewhere, question of origin, and we are headed somewhere, question of destiny, destination. We're headed towards restoration, and this is the encouraging part for us. The last piece of this here is that we need to understand that God took on human flesh in Christ this is where we'll pick up next week. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Whatever we would say about human suffering, we have to understand that God is not disconnected from human suffering. He understands it. He understands you. He understands your weakness. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He suffered. He felt suffering and pain. Christ did. Therefore, he can be our merciful high priest. We'll explore that a little bit more next week, but just know you are not alone in your suffering, in your hurt, in your pain, in your anxiety, in your worry. You have a creator God. He's created a good world for us to live in. And his son, Jesus, your high priest, your mediator, understands what you're going through in a way that you probably can't and I probably can't fully comprehend this side of heaven. He understands what we're going through. He's a merciful high priest. He's not sitting in clouds with lightning bolts waiting to zap us. He's a merciful high priest. Isn't that good news? It's good news. Lord, thanks so much for this time that we can spend together and talk about something that may be a little bit different type of study for us here at Sunrise, but one that I think is important for us to understand the world that you've created and made. God, you're not distant from us. You've created this world, and in fact, you entered this world. You took on human flesh, and you took on suffering willingly, Lord, we didn't necessarily have a choice in the matter. We, we were just simply born into a world that was already fallen and broken. But Lord, you chose to enter into this world and to identify with us in our weakness and our suffering and pain and grief and sorrow. So Lord, we pray that you would give us encouragement as we walk through these things, as we think about this, that we would think rightly about the world that you've made, that we would not stop short at just appreciating the beauty of this place but that we would hear the message that it's telling us and that is God is great and awesome and glorious. Lord, maybe there's some in here that don't know Christ as their savior. Maybe they're not followers of Jesus. I pray that you would use your word today to show them their need for you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.